the launch of Environmental Philanthropy, Stories to Inspire. We're delighted that so many of you could join us this evening as we celebrate some of the extraordinary achievements of environmental philanthropy around the globe. I'm Jane Kabuti from the Environmental Funders Network, the UK's network for individuals and foundations that support environmental causes. We have two aims, to make environmental philanthropy more effective and to encourage more funding and support for environmental causes. We're all now aware of the urgency with which we need to act on climate change and environmental degradation. We know, for example, that scientists calculate that emissions of climate heating gases must fall by half in the next nine years to give us any hope of limiting global heating to one and a half degrees, the consequences of which will be profound. We know that around a million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction, many within the next decades. And these are not just environmental issues, they're human issues. They're both caused by humans, they affect humans profoundly, some more than others. As we're here tonight, environmental philanthropy works and it has a unique role. It can be used to take risks, provide charities with long-term support, fund projects that other sources of funding would not touch and test out ideas that can be scaled up. There are so many who do give to environmental causes and the environmental funders in the environmental funders network is a rich and vibrant network as a result but the issues at stake could not be more urgent and important so we need as many people stepping up as possible so to inspire you to give more to environmental causes or to start giving our new publication environmental philanthropy stories to inspire is a collection of 27 stories of donors who provided funds that help solve significant environmental problems ranging from £5,000 to millions of pounds. In each instance, their support had a transformative effect. We're very lucky to have three of those donors on our panel this evening, Sophie Marple, Ben Goldsmith and Kevin Cox, thank you. Their very different stories feature in the publication. We're also very grateful to have Sir Mark Rylance joining us to talk about his support for environmental causes. Our host for this evening is Gillian Burke. You will have no doubt seen Gillian on your screens before as she hosted the BBC's much loved Spring Watch, as she joined the, the BBC's much loved Spring Watch brand in 2018 as one of the hosts, and also recently co presented the BBC's Blue Planet UK. Gillian has a degree in biology from Bristol University and worked her way up the ranks in natural history filmmaking from researcher to producer director on several Animal Planet and Discovery Channel series. Her biography actually says, whether from the natural world or the human world, she is drawn to the rich vein of stories that are full of universal themes of awe and wonder, defeat and victory, struggle and survival. As a scientist, she is committed to tracking down and sharing evidence of hope and why she defiantly remains an optimist on most days. And that's why we thought she would be the brilliant host for this evening, the, the perfect host. So over to you, Gillian. Thank you, Jane. Yes, I'm an optimist on most days. Actually, I have to say I find it quite hard to believe that sometimes. But um, yeah, welcome, everyone, first of all. And um, my optimism is founded in what I call real life quantifiable, in most cases, examples of natural recovery where nature actually bounces back. And that might be from a single species recovery or to whole landscapes that have been regenerated. So I, I'm a real believer in, in the latent and power of nature to recover. And what I know in almost every story 
at the heart of each of these stories I've had the honor to cover on the watches and in other parts of my work is that they're always deeply committed individuals. They're moved to donate their time, dig into their pockets, often both, and it's made a huge difference to these projects. It's a win for nature, um, but interestingly, it's also a win for the funders. Um, many of the people I've met um, who've funded or donated and supported projects in this way as philanthropists have become invested beyond the money and the time in outcomes that, if I'm honest, um, in, in many cases, uh, they won't witness the success of it in their lifetimes. So I find this really inspiring. And I guess maybe it's uh, quite amazing that it's possibly more than anything, this legacy that really lights people up. But you don't have to take my word for it. We have a brilliant panel here tonight who are gonna to share their inspiring stories and experiences. So I'm gonna go around and introduce everyone, each member, one at a time, and then ask each one to give me a short burst sort of answer about what got them into nature. And then we can get really stuck in with the nitty gritty of environmental philanthropy and why it works. So first I'm gonna start with some Mark Rylance. Mark began his career as a theatre actor, portraying in uh, numerous Shakespearean roles. He's won numerous awards, in, uh, including an Academy Award, a British Academy Film Award for Best Supporting Actor in a film, Bridge of Spies, that was in 2015, a, ba a BAFTA for Best Actor. He's a patron of the London International Festival of Theatre and also Peace Direct and the British Stop the War Coalition. So in amongst all of that, he has recently announced that he will volunteer for environmental organizations one month every year for the next decade. So that's an extraordinary commitment and pledge, Mark. Um, but I'm gonna start with you. What got you into nature? Thanks, Gillian. Yeah, it's a good question. I've been thinking about it for the last few days and um, people may or may not know that I had great difficulty speaking as a child up to about the age of six and found it easier to um, converse with trees and, uh, and nature than I did with people. And um, was very, uh, became very attached to trees at that time. Eventually my parents sorted out my speech problems and I moved away. But about sometime in the early seventies, some of you may remember better than I, um, a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee came out. And it came out about the time that I was moving away from both the Catholic and um, Episcopalian church um, and finding that they were not satisfying my, I don't know, a kind of need for connection with the spirit of things or, in, or a sense of integrity, of wholeness or harmony in my life, even as a young teenager. And as I read about indigenous peoples, I was very struck by their relationship with the world and with nature. And I guess I found an authority there to replace the authority that the church had been to me earlier on. I, to my embarrassment in my twenties, I was still under the illusion that all these wrongs to indigenous people had been done back in the 1860s and how, how rotten all those people were. And I suddenly realized, of course, they, they were going on even stronger now. Um, uh, against the millions of indigenous and tribal peoples and got involved with that and learned more and more just about the beauty of their relationship with nature, which was a relationship not of domination or utility, but a relationship more like you would have with someone in your family. Um, and that's really struck me. And I suppose 
more recently, Shakespeare has influenced me that way. And even more recently with cancer amongst friends and family, as I get older, I'm 60 now, I've seen so many people cure and move through the threats of cancer by, by changing what they eat, what they drink, what they breathe, the way that they move through the landscape and seeing that um, cancer is a symptom of an unwell immune system. And once you get into healing your immune system, um, you really have to start looking at healing the environment around you. And so those would be some of the influences that have come to my mind and make it uh, something that I'm keen to be part of. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for sharing that, actually. It's it's never an easy answer to uh, question to answer, actually. There's lots of elements there. Um, I'm going to move on to Kevin. Kevin Cox was chairman and chief executive of Origin Publishing, a company he founded back in 1996 and subsequently sold to BBC magazines. His interest in international conservation led to his involvement with the World Land Trust, where he is a council member and a chair of its trading company. Kevin served on the RSPB Council for from 2011 to 2016 and was appointed chair of council in 2017. He is a former chair of Devon Birds, a member of the BTO, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust and Devon Wildlife Trust, amongst other conservation organisations. He lives in Devon on the edge of Dartmoor, where he and his wife manage 130 acres for the benefit of nature. So, Kevin, um, what got you into nature? Thanks, Julian. It, it, yeah, I've been thinking as well about you know, my childhood. It's a good opportunity to look back and, and, and I've thought do you know that actually most children I think are really connected to nature I think the question is what happens to us afterwards why is it that some people actually get disconnected in later life from nature so I really subscribe to something that E.O. Wilson calls biophilia because I think we've all got it somewhere and actually it gets suppressed it gets suppressed by all of those things many of the things Mark talked about you know the things that actually uh, inhibit our connection to nature, whether that's work, whether it's just a whole range of things, the, 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 the entire system. Um, mine, I grew up in, in West London, uh, so I wasn't exactly in the, in the countryside. And the honest answer is fishing got me into nature, just sitting quietly, often by a gravel pit. And it was a form of meditation. And of course, I didn't catch very much, but what I saw were kingfishers and water voles and all of that life around me. And that then just developed a lifelong interest since then. Yeah, yeah, that time, isn't it? Time spent in nature. And I, like you say, well, you know, that separation from nature, when does that happen? Um, Sophie Marple and her husband, Nick, founded their family charitable trust, Gower Street, in 2007, and for the first nine years focused on supporting girls' education in sub-Saharan Africa. After re-evaluating their grant giving three years ago, they moved their focus to the, to the fight for a livable climate, which is an expression I'm a real fan of. Um, they did this when they discovered that less than 3% of UK philanthropic capital is deployed towards this crisis. With a background in media and marketing, Sophie has focused Gower Street's funding towards awareness raising and with a love of woods and nature has supported partners working on natural climate solutions. She is also an active impact angel investor, which is such a great title. <laughs> Sophie, what got you into nature? 
Um, so I did grow up in the country and um, I think like Kevin said, I think that children do have an incredible kind of connection with nature. Um, we now very fortunately have a co house on the coast and again you're kind of surrounded by nature and I do we do live in central London or we get to go to the coast you suddenly feel sort of like a whole person again it really is the most incredible connection but our um, sort of our connection to EFN is definitely through climate and um, as you just said our trust is um, about funding in, in climate and I think what has become I think when we first came to it, it was very much one to me it was one side of the point and over the last three years I've realized that you know nature biodiversity and climate conservation it's so connected it all works together and it can't it can't work in separate silos so it's um yes yeah, so, so now it's sort of bringing up again this sort of uh, connection that I have to, to nature and how important it is yeah I would agree I'm, uh, many sides of a multifaceted coin I'm not quite sure I'm trying to work out how to say that two sides of the same coin nevertheless um, ben Goldsmith is CEO of Manhattan Capital Management. I have to ask, is that Manhattan or Manhattan? It depends where you live in the world. It's actually a fish which lives in the Atlantic. And it is um, arguably the most important fish in the Atlantic, although it's down by 99% from where it was in pre-industrial times. And I think the Canadians call it Menadin, the Americans Manhattan, and the British Manhattan. Right, well, we're in Britain, I'll say Manhattan. <laughs> ben is CEO of Manhattan Capital Management, LLP, which manages London listed investment trust, Manhattan Capital PLC. And this invests in business opportunities arising from the efficient use of energy and resources. So Ben was appointed non-executive board member of the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in 2018. He chairs the Goldsmith Family's Philanthropic Foundation, the JMG Foundation, which has a focus on environment and is also a trustee of one of the UK's largest philanthropic foundations, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. Ben co-founded the UK Environmental Funders Network in 2003 and is a member of its advisory group. So with that insight into Manhattan, Manhattan, <laughs> Manhattan um, Ben, what got you into nature? So, um, well, thank you very much for, for this and well done to Jane and Florence of the Environmental Funders Network for producing the book and for organizing this webinar and for really rabble rousing amongst them potential environmental philanthropists up and down the country because it, it's working and more and more people are opening their wallets for environmental work and that's um, a, a big thing. So how did, um, so I, I mean, I agree with what, with, with, with what Kevin said in particular, and that is that all children are born with an innate fascination with and reverence for nature. If, find me a toddler who isn't um, entranced by a frog, you, you won't. And, and, I, and I think that, 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 that this disconnection happens in some or many people as they grow up. But, but the love of nature remains within us. And, and I, I was thinking recently that even, even those of our friends who profess the least interest in the natural world are prepared to pay twice for an apartment that overlooks the park. Or they want a hotel room that overlooks the sea when they go on holiday. Or you walk across Primrose Hill when the sun comes out and everyone's there. We, we, we have a deep yearning for contact with nature even if we don't know it and and i i for some reason i think probably because of the people who surrounded me when i was growing up um i never lost that that sense of connection it's it's the first place i go for, for solace it's the first place i go for um a sense of renewal um i i need to be in nature um in order to feel well and i i think that's because of my brother zach my older brother who 
was running around with a t-shirt saying save the hedgehogs um age seven or eight and um and we, we used to get up very early in the morning and go looking for fox cubs and and and, and badgers and so on um at dawn on in richmond park and and it, uh, others around me um loved nature and, and therefore for me it was normal it was normal and so i continued and i think if you really love nature you can't bear to see the the natural fabric of our world becoming ever more threadbare, which it is, and therefore you become an obvious environmentalist. And that's why, in, in addition to, um, with with uh, one or two of my colleagues um, who might be on this call, indeed, um, I um, I run Manhattan, which is a green investment business. But I spend a bunch of time, in addition, hustling for nature wherever I can. Um, for example, infiltrating the government's Department of Environment and doing my best to uh, lobby for tough and ambitious environmental policies there um so that's uh that's what i do thank you thank you so much i love, love spring watch I'm, I'm very starstruck here by the way i feel quite, <laughs> quite i'm starstruck by kevin and sophie and and by mark for goodness sake and and you julian i love spring watch <laughs> oh, well thank you very much for that <laughs> it's always very odd sort of doing this in your home because i kind of forget that's what i do but yes i suppose um so we're going to get stuck in now with um the nitty-gritty i call it mark um earlier on i hinted at um how supporting environmental causes can involve donating money but it can also involve donating what I would call our most precious and irrepla irreplaceable resource, which is our time. Um, you've recently made this commitment to devote a month of every year to environmental causes. Can you tell me more about what, you know, obviously we know you've got this com a commitment and, and connection to nature, but is there something specific that has spurred you on to do, make this pledge? Yeah, it was interesting how that ha happened, Gillian. It happened on Country File one of your competitors, I believe. Um, and uh, I marched into the program and spoke very rapidly for about an hour and a half about the National Nature Service, which was something I've been working on from the beginning of the uh, pandemic in February, inspired by uh, FDR's Civilian Conservation Corps, where he put 300,000 Americans to work in three months, 300,000 in three months. And over the nine years between 33 and 42, they planted something, I wrote it down here, 3.5 billion trees. Um, so that was, during, that was during the Great Depression, right? That's right, that's right. It had been done in some states before in America, but he made it a federal program and he moved people, unemployed people from the cities out into the environment, averting millions of dollars of forest fire damage, something America could use again now by thinning the forests. The workers were paid a wage, and I think a certain percentage of that wage was sent straight home to their families, who obviously were in trouble in the Depression. I was struck in the early spring by the synchronicity of the figures uh, between my profession, um, who were in the hundreds of thousands, around 300,000, who were facing unemployment, particularly the freelancers, who make up 70% of the theater and film community, um, live arts community, uh, and who were looking at either running through their savings or moving to unemployment. And then also the permanent staff in theaters who were being furloughed by the government. 
And I and it seemed to me, why not, if you're going to need to pay these people anyway, why why not um, offer them match their unemployment with the great amount of work that needs to be done in the environment? Something that FDR obviously saw and acted on very quickly. And we could have in the last nine months have done an incredible amount of work in many places, particularly in the wetlands, Kevin, which I'll come to in a moment. Um, so I pursued this idea through the spring, talking with George Monbiat and then Rebecca Wigley at Rewilding Britain, talking with Board of Forest Trust and Trees for Life and all kinds of different people, just investigating what kind of work could take place in the environment. Um, very early on, a, a wonderful man called Alan Watson Featherstone, um, who is a very early uh, environmentalist, warned me or kind of didn't warn me but advised me he said when you start to work with trees you you you've got to start to think like trees which is not in months or years but in decades and in centuries uh be patient he said i i went into this in the first you know year thinking i was going to get these things done in a year and here it is 30 or 40 years later and i can see that I'm, I'm now living and thinking more like a tree. Anyway, I forgot about that and charged ahead. Uh, eventually the Woodland Trust, um, the nice man there, Darren Moorcroft said, actually there's a group who are already working on this, um, the Wildlife and Countryside Link, which is the largest alliance, as I'm sure most of you know, of environmental groups in England. And they had also been inspired by FDR's uh, program and we're moving towards something they wanted to call the National Nature Service. So that's how I found myself on Countryfile, uh, being the spokesperson, being a notorious celebrity for the National Nature Service. And, and, and speaking far too rapidly, as my wife <laughs> told me immediately afterwards, and they cut everything I said, well informed as it was, and included some naff jokes about theater people being lobbies, which, which I hated. And this chance question they threw in, would you commit a month a year for this 10 years of the UN um, crisis of biodiversity? And I said, of course, what could I say? Of course I would. Um, and afterwards I thought, right, well, what am I going to, where am I going to find that to do? But I did think immediately about the trees and I did think, uh, that's nature. That's nature saying it's one thing as a celebrity to go in and talk about things. Um, are you actually committed yourself? Are you speaking from a, a place of experience or are you just gaining benefits as a celebrity that you're a good person? Um, and so it felt like the question had come from nature itself to me, um, a challenge. Will you put your back where your front is? Will you put your feet where your head is? That kind of thing. And so I've searched around and it's lovely to be sitting on my screen underneath Kevin Cox because I, I was, I've been particularly inspired. I mean, everyone's inspiring. And one of the great things about searching around this whole field is that you feel such despair, even hearing the introduction tonight about the situation. Um, page 30 of the government's recent 10 point uh, thing. Uh, includes, doesn't it, the comment that we are now moving towards a three degrees centigrade global rise in average temperature. That means no growing of vegetables um, in a natural way. Uh, why has the BBC and no one else reported that uh, comment on page 30 of the government's document? I wonder. Um, but I've searched around and what was interesting to me was while a lot of us, myself included, are waking up to these facts now, many people have been aware of them for 30 or more years. Um, 
the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust that Kevin mentioned earlier and of which he's a governor, they've been at it for 75 years. And these people really know and have so many positive ideas and ways that we can turn this situation around very, very quickly um, if we can change our minds and if we can turn, for example, that 3% philanthropy figure um, into something healthier. A hundred million pounds that some person gave to Cambridge University last year, didn't they? A one-off gift. 50% of donations go to education, health, arts, and culture. Just one of those millions, or possibly three of those millions, would have made a huge difference. Why did that organizational gentleman not think of that when he gave that money to... Um, to Cambridge University, or indeed Cambridge, think about passing on a little bit of that. Anyway, the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust is particularly inspiring, and they're about to launch a um, campaign for 100,000 hectares of wetlands to be restored. These have uh, incredible simple benefits. Obviously, wetlands is a marvelous carbon storage network, and they have a lot of evidence to show that, even more than forests, so I'm all for planting trees. Wetlands also uh, reduce flood risk, obviously. And one of the things we can be certain of is a new relationship with the oceans, is it not? If not already a new relationship with the water that tumbles down our treeless slopes into towns and rivers and lakes. Um, the wetlands, the restoring of wetlands could, could be a significant feature in reducing flood risk. Much more helpful, I think, than trying to build concrete walls around our little island. There's a, there's a lot of proof that well-being for human beings is, is, is increased if you go into green spaces. But interestingly, there's even more benefit from, from uh, proximity to water, to rivers, lakes, oceans. Why do so many of us um, want to go to, to water when we want a holiday or when we, want, we are not feeling well? Um, so there's a, there's a third thing there. And the last thing was also the improvement of our water quality. They have 30 years of experience um, doing this, removing phosphates and nitrates, which have an immediate uh, beneficial uh, um, benefit for all species. Um, and this is something that we hope water companies will be interested in and that we can, uh, we can do, do our part in reversing the biodiversity loss of which apparently we are rank 189 out of 218 nations. We are, se are severely nature depleted nation. You, you wouldn't think of it to, to look around or to watch Country File and even your program, which give an impression that everything's hunky-dory, but actually we're severely depleted. Anyway, long talk, but Wetlands and Wildfowl Trust is where I'd really like to get my feet into the water and be a spokesperson for them uh, and I feel that's something that all of us celebrities could learn, that if we speak from experience or standing close to what we're talking about, then our words will have more meaning. Um, it's something you learn if you try and uh, learn to be a boxer, Gillian, uh, that, that your punches have no effect unless your feet are connected to the ground. Indeed, it's something I learned when I was at the Globe, that um, <laughs> speaking is is uh, it, it, it gets a little bit panicky and shouty unless you have your feet on the ground. Absolutely. Um, so that's my answer to your question. Thank Thanks. You. <laughs> well, we have to try some boxing as well at some point. Um, Kevin, um, you're, let's move on to Kevin. It's a nice segue actually because you have a story where um, 
a, a difference has already been made. So your story is in the publication, which is here if you haven't seen it. Um, it's about the blue-throated macaw. Can you tell us about the plight of this really beautiful bird and how you came across it in northern Bolivia? This is actually the, this is the only place in the world where this species is still found. It, it is. It's, I mean, it's an absolutely fabulous bird. If, I'm, if, if I can, I'm going to share my screen so you can actually have a look at it rather than me trying to describe it and some of the habitat and some of the, the, the issues around that. Let me see if I can share that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Does that come through? That's come through, yeah. Uh, what you're seeing, uh, yeah, Gillian, is, is this is Beni province in northern Bolivia. This is, this is an area twice the size of Portugal. It's, um, it's incredibly flat. Coming back to what Mark said, it's also very wet. So for six months of the year, it is, it's uh, impenetrable because it, it floods. So it's um, a flooded grassland savanna. And when I, I mean, my real passion is for birds, um, which is how I got involved with the RSPB. And, uh, but, but I'd always really loved forest birds. And the thing that drove me was to look for a project around particularly cloud forest in South America. And I ended up uh, 12 years ago coming here and seeing this amazing place. And as you can see here, uh, it's actually a savannah. It's all grassland, most of it's ca extensive cattle ranching, and it's being burnt the whole time. So there's an enormous pressure on this land, uh, carbon release. But when you get to those areas that are um, pristine, and you've got the wetlands, and you've got this riparian woodland and it's here that you get this amazing bird the blue-throated macaw uh, it's one of the rarest uh, rarest um, macaws certainly one of the rarest parrots in the world it's down to about 150 pairs or it was when I first visited um, beautiful animal uh, really charismatic and it lives in these um, riparian forests these these um, gallery forests all along the rivers and feeds on the palm, palm nuts and also now, which we didn't know at the time, uh, nests inside some of the hollow trees. But of course, the trees themselves are under threat from overgrazing, from burning, from deforestation. So it was absolutely imperative that we looked at a way of saving the bird by buying land. And I was uh, over there with um, a very well-known American uh, ornithologist Bob Ridgely. We went to see the birds. I met BirdLife Bolivia, um, Armenia out there, and we came across this amazing ranch for sale. It was about 6,000 hectares, so vast. And at the time, land in Bolivia was selling for around 15 pounds an acre. So incredibly cheap when you think that an acre in the UK costs around 10,000 pounds now. And, and it was absolutely clear that one of the best ways of saving this species from extinction, and it was threatened with hunting, with collection for the bird trade, um, from actually from this bird as well, which is another macaw, looks very similar, but slightly larger, and evicts it from its nest. This is the blue and yellow macaw, much broader distribution. Um, obviously, you can't blame the macaw, it's the fact that the habitat has been lost. But there are side benefits as well by saving 
uh, land and therefore by having a charismatic species right at the forefront of that, a lot of other species benefit, including these, which are black skimmers, there's an American kestrel uh, on a wire, the, the, the really beautiful woodstalk, one of our best looking birds in the world, and some of the primates as well. So this is a black howler monkey. So there's a lot of other benefits that come with uh, land. And that was what really, I think, drove me um, to, to get involved with this project. But of course, buying land is only one part of the process. So having bought it, it unlocked an awful lot of others to come in. And now the reserve that's up there, it's called the Baba Azul Reserve. Baba Azul means bluebeard, which is the name of the bird uh, because it's blue throated. And the reserve has doubled in size. It's just two weeks ago, finally been um, uh, confirmed as a private nature reserve in Bolivia. And since then, of course, uh, there's been a lot of work done working with the local community. Many of the people there had no idea that this bird was so threatened because, of course, if you see it the whole time, you don't know that it only exists in this very small area of one country in South America. So a lot of community engagement, a lot of work and, and a lot of the management for it as well. So working with other ranchers to try to get them to work uh, to support the bird. It doesn't even nest on the reserve. So we've been finding places where it does nest. And of course, many of those other species that previously were persecuted, puma, jaguar, ocelot, trying to get people to see this. There's greater value in protection of nature, as well as, of course, the benefits for carbon uh, through the wetlands that Mark talked about. Yeah, one of, one of my favourite lines in, in your story here in the publication is, you say that for the price of a flash car, it's possible to save a species from extinction. So is this a, is this a more useful outlet for a midlife crisis than do you think? Yeah, well, it might, might well be a midlife crisis. I, I hope so. I mean, if 12 years ago I'd stuck the money into a Porsche, I mean, by now it would be in a scrapyard. What, I mean, there is, for me, there is no greater thing that we can do than uh, saving species from extinction. Jane talked about a million species on the brink of extinction at the moment. Yeah. Yes, we know some of those threats, exactly as Mark said, it's here, but it's global as well. Climate is one of those big drivers, but so is habitat loss, so is the intensification of agriculture, the waste, a whole range of things. You know, yes, faster than planting a tree, it is possible to turn around uh, the, the, the outcomes for species like this. And the trouble is, there are so many of them. You know, the, the, the job never ends. We just have to keep going. So I'd certainly encourage everybody to think about, you know, this, and I've got far more back from this, I have to say, by working with people in Bolivia, working with the teams, going out there, visiting. It's not the most comfortable place, I have to say. I mean, it, it is full of mosquitoes because it's wetland. Uh, it's, I come back eaten alive by, um, by, by the bugs out there, but I still absolutely get more pleasure from seeing, knowing that there is a species that would probably otherwise only have been in captivity and no longer in the wild. If it hadn't been, look, I'm a small part of this. This is much more about support for a really fantastic organization uh, in BirdLife Bolivia. 
but they're all across the world. The BirdLife Partners, it's the biggest partnership of which RSPB is, is, is a, uh, a founding member. So I, I think that if anybody wants, you will have no shortage of uh, species and habitat, but also the benefits that it brings uh, working alongside communities as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sophie, your story is also in the publication, but it's quite different from Kevin's and uh, Kevin's saving a species story. This is about changing the zeitgeist. So you chose to fund elements of the XR, the Extinction Rebellion, April um, Rebellion. Can you tell me how that came about? Um, yeah, so um, I had the great pleasure of meeting um, Gail Bradbrook and Skeena Rathor just before the April 2019 um, rebellion. And I had I'd, I'd heard of Extinction Rebellion. I had seen some of their communications. And to be fair, when I'd when I'd seen their seen their demands, and they were really you know quite relentless demands, I was um, I was actually quite relieved because it suddenly felt to me like somebody was really standing up and doing something, something you know very very strong. And so when I, I met them, I was I was slightly because it is quite strong communication. I have background in marketing, so when I saw this, I was like, goodness, these are going to be quite fierce people. But I met them, and it was actually quite the opposite. So um, they were just quite extraordinary. They they didn't blast me with facts and figures about the climate science or, you know, and, and um, or talk to me much about the science at all, actually, even though both of them absolutely could. Um, they're well enough informed by far. Um, no, they talked to me in a really different way about climate. They talked to me in a very emotional way um, about, yeah, about the love of the planet, about um, nature and the biodiversity and and they talk about grief and what we're losing as the human race as we basically destroy a lot of the nature around us. And they talked to me as a mother about their children. And it was just I just hadn't experienced um, anything like that before. And they really, for me, kind of uplifted this thing that I spoke about at the, minute, at the beginning, which is kind of this connection between nature, biodiversity and, and climate. Um, and I, I just thought they were they were absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I I. You know, as I say, I'd seen the messaging and, and I know people have quite strong views about it. As I say, I was quite relieved that they were sort of quite strong and, and, and out there. And they told me um, at this this one meeting about their plans for um, the 2019 um, April Rebellion. And I actually was a like, what? I can't I can't really understand that you're going to do something quite as huge as this. But it was it was all in their minds and all quite crazy. And, and I, I couldn't. And I just thought, actually, these people are they're, they're really on to something. And they need funding. That's what they said. They just needed this urgent funding. They were they had a, a grant that they were much big grant that was supposed to be coming from quite a big funder. But if you fund as a big funder, you there are often quite a lot of hoops and things to to to, um, to get the money. So um, we are much smaller, and we were able to fund quite quickly. Um, and I just thought, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go for this. And so basically after the meeting, I said, yes, I'm going to fund you. Um, and I went home and I got on the phone and I phoned up two friends. And one I think is also on this, this call and said, fund, fund these people. And they were like, really? And I was like, yes. And I'm going to just, I'm just going to, I'm going to now try and share my screen. See if I can do this. I'm just going to show you a few photos for those of you who were there. This will be great memories. And uh, for those of you who weren't, you'll see a huge mix of people that um, that I was part, you know, I was part of, and to go there and just sort of see this huge plethora of different people and all these different messages was just, 
it was it was extraordinary. It was it was a real um, joyous occasion. It was real celebration of life and and as I say, just a huge mix of and and you know it's with a lot of humour and a lot of good nature. And I mean this pink boat, which lots of people will have seen on the news, and it was just it was quite quite extraordinary. Um, and I think none of us knew what a difference this two weeks was going to make. No one had an idea how um, how um, quite quite the conversations that we would have following this uh, this the, the rebellion. I mean, I had conversations I'd never had. You know, three weeks earlier, I was just not having the same conversations. And all I would say is that um, you know there was no funding agreement. There was no reporting afterwards. I literally just gave the money and it was on instinct. And I'm not saying that this is the way that everyone should fund. It was just that it felt right. And I think sometimes what I would learn out of that is that you can't always guarantee the outcomes. You know, even if they told me what that outcome was, was there's no way I would have believed them. So just, just sometimes it's instinct and it's gut and you just think, yep, yeah, this is gonna happen. And you know, you might fund three or four of these and they might not come off and then you're going to have one like that. And I've, I've never been proud of a, of, a, of a piece of funding I've done. So worth taking a risk is the, is the message of what I'm hearing there. Yeah. I'm going to ask Ben, because equally, I think your story in, in also in the, in the publication, Ben, you took on something vast as well. This is challenging trade agreements. Um, which, you know, reading about this in the publication, it really brought it home to me in terms of all the, the levers that were operating in order to challenge these trade agreements. And so these are trade deals between the USA, Canada and the European Union. So can you tell me how your funding contributed to suspending the trade negotiations? So this was, um, just to remind people, this was TTIP. So that was the Transatlantic Trade in investment partnership and then the comprehensive economic and trade agreement CETA. So how did your funding halt these negotiations? So I, I walked around for a while with a badge on my lapel which said no to TTIP and um, people's eyes glazed over. And I guess the, um, I guess the thing is this, um, when my father was alive, he, he died when I was 16 in 1997, um, his, his view was you need to try and fund stuff that other people aren't funding. You know, fund the unfundable. Unfundable because it's technical or it's boring or it's too radical or you know, to take Sophie's example, it's too risky because that's where your money is going to have the biggest impact. And so after my father died, really under the leadership of um, my brother, Zach, and, and, and John Cracknell, who runs our family foundation, who has, has taught me a lot about how to give money away effectively, we, we decided that we would pool our resources as a family, five or six of us really, not everyone. My father had about a dozen children, but about five, five or six of us together teamed up and formed a foundation. And we decided that together we would fund some of the trickier stuff, stuff that is more technical, stuff where we could really bring about massive change if, if we could get our hands on the right lever and pull it. And that we would, in addition, do stuff that each of us loves privately and separately. So for example, I hope to have the opportunity to tell you guys a little bit about the Beaver Trust. I, I think returning beavers to British rivers is about the greatest bang for your buck you can get in terms of nature restoration in Britain today. And these people are, are beavering away, making that a reality. And it's, even though the prime minister is trying to get beavers back on his father's farm on Exmoor, the prize is not yet won. So privately, 
I do stuff which feeds directly my fascination with and love for the natural world. I fund the Beaver Trust. I fund efforts to bring the wildcat back to England. I fund stuff around species and nature. And, um, and that is great and exciting. Through the JMG Foundation, where we work together and we typically do stuff that's looking for bigger wins, we funded work in particular around trade. Because these trade deals are pretty boring to most people. They don't even, they don't, people don't even read about them particularly. But the, the transatlantic deal, the deal between European Union and us and the Americans and the Canadians, had the potential to not only flood our own market with, with for example, food produced to a really appallingly low standard um, as part of the condition of the deal, but they also give those countries and corporations in those countries the right to sue us for trying to push back against those standards. So for example, there've been cases through, um, um, uh, th throughout the world where you have um, uh, a particular government that says, no, I don't want that chemical plant, or no, I don't want to have to import food that's been produced using huge amounts of growth hormones. And they've been sued for closing their market unfairly to corporations that sell that stuff or build those things. So these trade deals really create a kind of race to the bottom in terms of, in particular, environmental and animal welfare standards. And so we, we put together a, a program of funding over a period of years. Um, we supported a whole bunch of different organizations, grassroots organizations, think tanks, um, political advocacy and lobbying groups, um, uh, a coalition building, a whole bunch of stuff. And we created what I think is probably one of the most successful, in the EU at least, one of the most successful citizen movements that's been seen. Um, and we, 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 we funded organizations, not alone, but um, we, we were the principal funder, I think, for several years of, of, of all of these groups. And, and we, we helped catalyze a coalition that saw off those trade deals. And um, I, I, I guess the kind of bottom line is, um, it's great to focus at the grassroots and to do stuff that you find deeply rewarding um, in, in terms of nature restoration. Most of us in the environmental movement, if not all of us, are nature lovers, and therefore we are drawn to restoring nature directly. And that is really, that is God's work. Um, and it's deeply, deeply fulfilling. But it's important that some funders as well look at the trickier stuff and try to tackle some of the systemic or kind of top of the pipe issues. Such as, such as these trade deals. I think they're a really prime example. And I don't think, I gotta give a shout out to John Cracknell. Really John should be, um, John, John Cracknell, who some of you will know, was asked by my father at the age of 22 or something, was asked by my father to come and help him figure out where he could direct funding to make the biggest difference. And, and, and John has advised my family really for years and is hugely, hugely um, strategic and smart when it comes to to these things. And I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome because this program was designed by John. You know, we, we, we said, yes, we should do this. He convinced us we should do this. And I've tried to play my part, but really I've taken a back seat to John and, and Harriet Williams who works with him. And, and, um, and it's really worked. And I, and I, I think that, um, yeah, if those members of the public that get to read about the horrors that might've been, if, uh, if they look at some of these trade deals, we'll probably never know of the organizations behind it and, 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 not that we mind of, of us funders behind that, but I, I, I'm quietly proud that, that um, we did those things. So, um, so I guess uh, this, this, this potentially rather technocratic story um, illustrates that you sometimes have to look for, 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 for the boring stuff um, or the technical stuff. Um, and, um, and if you get it right, you can really, you can shift the juggernaut.
And um, I think we did that in respect of TTIP and the other trade deals. Um, and perhaps we can get back to beavers at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, we've got some time, a little bit of time left over for questions that were sent in when um, people watching were registering for this event. Um, I'm going to go to a question that was directed for Sophie about what can we do to encourage and support more people to give to environmental causes? That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, rightly or wrongly, um, a lot of the work that, um, that has been done to instigate change to protect our climate um, is being left to the philanthropic and charity sectors. So there is a huge need. And, um, and I think as a funder coming into this sector, it can be, feel really overwhelming to work out where your money is best spent and most impactfully spent. Um, but I think the most important thing to understand is that whatever level of funding, you can make a difference. So, you know, please don't think that, you know, we, we did think as a funder at the beginning that, that the, the amount of money we could dedicate to the sector was actually, you know, wouldn't make a difference. And it's not true. You know, for actually quite small amounts, you can make a huge impact. So if I was a new funder coming into the sector now, the first thing I would do absolutely definitely would be join EFN. It was the first piece of advice we were given and we met Florence and um, we just found EFN an absolutely great resource. It's a great way to learn and it's a great way to build your confidence and, um, and really learn about the sector. And then the next thing I would suggest is that you talk to other trusts, other foundations, many of whom are, who are members of EFN too, and find out what they're doing. And EFN do these great, um, give these great opportunities to convene lots of different trusts together. So you get to meet them. It's an incredibly networked sector, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and then I would say also, you know, reach out for help. I mean, there's a number of organisations that will will um, uh, will offer strategic help. Um, so, for example, if you're a funder who's planning to spend considerable kind of seven figure sums of money in the sector, there's an initiative called the Climate Leadership Initiative, and they're great people to talk to for um, strategic advice. Um, and something that um, I'm working with is a relatively new initiative called um, Impatience Earth. And our ambition is to bring an additional 100 billion into this sector. Um, and we are doing that by helping funders who may or may not currently be, be funding in this sector um, to make the right or to make good funding decisions and to sort of build confidence so that they will invest the money that they want to invest to make a difference. Because it's incredible as a funder, sometimes you don't even spend the money that you want to invest because you don't have the confidence to make the investments that are sitting in front of you. And it's about a lot about building confidence and, and having the trust and using your gut instinct. So on some of the stuff I talked about earlier. Um, so if you're interested you know, in any of this, um, France can, you know, if you're interested in, in, in patients, that's something you should know about us actually. We're fully funded by a major climate foundation. They recognise the potential as well of um, of encouraging more funding into the net into the um, the sector, um, and we work with funders who are ready to pledge about hundred thousand pounds upward into the sector. So you know, if we can be connected with me, and France can also connect anybody who's um, who needs to to the um, climate um, funders initiative. So yeah, lots of options there. So I hope that might be of, of some help. Yeah, no, it's hugely useful. Thank you. Um, I think we've got time for one last question, um, and this is for Kevin. Um, about where the priority for funding should go. Should it go to changing systems or supporting habitats and species? I think oh, it's I think both. It's, oh, there we go. 
it, it's absolutely both. And, you know, I, I'm listening to Ben talking about how, you know, the funding that went in to uh, countering TTIP, without that, we would just be on a slippery slope. But at the same time, you know, species are on the brink. And I think one of the things we've got to do, which Sophie talked about, is recognise many of the drivers of that. And we've got to put money into addressing those and finding the solutions and things that Mark talked around about wetlands, about peatlands, about woodlands. You know, nature-based solutions to climate change are absolutely out there and they will deliver benefits for both nature and for climate and for people. So we've really got to do all of those things. But I just want to endorse two things that Sophie said. One is EFN has been absolutely brilliant and Ben and others, and of course Florence and the team, just been tremendous, putting people in touch. You, know, you can't save the world on your own. So more than anything, actually the community that, uh, that EFN puts you in touch with, the other uh, organizations. So I'd really encourage people, what Mark is doing, giving a month of his time is fantastic. We can't all do that, but when you can, your time is as valuable as money. And that time being spent with bigger organisations working together. Many, I, I can't save species on my own. I couldn't have done that in Bolivia. You know, equally, the big project that RSPB is working on at the moment that got postponed this year was uh, the eradication of mice from Gough Island in the South Atlantic. It's part of the Tristan de Kuna group. Uh, RSPB has been working with others in the environmental se sector for the last 10 years to get a marine protection area declared around the Tristan de Kuna. 10 days ago, it finally happened. And I think Ben's brother, Zach, could take a lot of credit for, for, for getting it through. So I'm really grateful for that. It's three times the size of the UK. None of us individually could do that. We have to work in partnership. And going out there, the, the project to eradicate mice uh, which are invasive, that have been uh, now eating their way through all of the albatrosses. The Tristan albatross will go extinct within the next 10 years. The goth bunting, a number of other species, unless we do it. It's a 10, 11 million pound project. None of us, well, I certainly can't fund anything like that. But together, we are much more powerful. So I think find the things that really make you excited and work with others. And it doesn't matter, as Sophie said, how much it is or whether it's time and, and just go and do it. Because I think the other thing I'd say is it's important not to put this off. I see so many people who give legacies and never see the benefit of it because they're dead. Actually, now is the time while you're alive to give your time and to give your money to this thing because that's when it makes the difference. And you get also the benefit of knowing it's happening now. The it's too urgent for us to leave this. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. I think we've only got like a, literally a couple of minutes left. So I just want to thank um, everyone for listening, everyone on the panel. And I'd like to hand over to Hugh Raven, who's the chair of EFN, to make a few closing remarks. Thanks so much. Julian, thank you so much. You're brilliant. That was wonderful. Thank you for chairing that so well. And thank you also to our wonderful panelists who are truly inspiring. I mean, I've been inspired. I love EFN. I wasn't intending to say that, but I can't not say that. I just am so excited by having heard what 
my colleagues in the EFN executive have pulled together in this event. It's been absolutely brilliant, truly inspiring. And of course, thank you also for all the contributions to our wonderful book, which we're launching this evening. Uh, we actually had far more contributions than we were able to fit in. Uh, so there may be another one on the way in due course. But in the meantime, thank you, Gillian's showing it there. Please do read and be inspired by this really remarkable publication that EFN has pulled together. Uh, and let me just emphasize something that Kevin's just said, the urgency of this could really not be greater. So please do get involved and read this book and see what you can do, even with relatively small amounts of money, as we've heard, saving species, you can help, changing international policies, you can help, raising concern about climate change. I mean, look at what's happened to public opinion since the pandemic started with the changing levels of public awareness of these issues. We can all contribute to these things. And one of the ways you can do that is through getting in touch with EFN and my brilliant colleagues who run the organization, Florence and her, her team. Uh, our website, greenfunders.org, tells you how to contact us. If you haven't been in touch before, please do, because we're a very friendly and I think truly inspiring bunch, uh, I say, of my, my colleagues, I hasten to add. And of course, please share this wonderful publication, Environmental Philanthropy Stories to Inspire. Share it with others online, go on social media, promote it. And if you need some copies, please get in touch with us. But thank you so much. I've been so inspired myself personally this evening. And I just love what EFN does and these events. So thank you to everybody very much indeed.